Chapter 7 of Fighting the Whales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Fighting the Whales by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter 7 Tom's Wisdom Another Great Battle. One day I was standing beside the windlass, listening to the conversation of five or six of the men, who were busy sharpening harpoons and cutting knives, or making all kinds of toys and things out of whale's bones. We had just finished cutting in and trying out our third whale, and as it was not long since we reached the fishing ground, we were in high hopes of making a good thing of it that season, so that everyone was in good spirits, from the captain down to the youngest man in the ship. Tom Lokins was smoking his pipe, and Tom's pipe was an uncommonly black one, for he smoked it very often. Moreover, Tom's pipe was uncommonly short, so short that I always wondered how he escaped burning the end of his nose. Indeed, some of the men said that the redness of the end of Tom's nose was owing to its being baked like a brick by the heat of his pipe. Tom took this pipe from his mouth, and while he was pushing down the tobacco with the end of his little finger, he said, "'Do you know, lads, I've been thinking.' "'No, have you?' cried one of the men, interrupting him with a look of pretended surprise. "'Well, now, I do think, messmates, that we should ask the mate to make a note of that in the log, for it's not often that Tom Lokins takes to thinking.' There was a laugh at this, but Tom, turning with a look of contempt to the man who interrupted him, replied, "'I'll tell you what it is, Bill Blunt, if all the thoughts that you think—' and especially the jokes that you utter was put down in the log, they'd be so heavy that I do believe they would sink the ship. Well, well, cried Bill, joining in the laugh against himself. If they did, your jokes would be so light and trifling that I do believe they'd float her again. But what have you been a-thinking of, Tom? I've been thinking, said Tom slowly, that if a whale makes his breakfast entirely off them little things that you can hardly see when you get him into a tumbler, I forget how the captain calls him, what a tremendous heap of em he must eat in the course of a year. Thousands of em, I suppose, said one of the men. Thousands, cried Tom. I should rather say billions of them. How much is billions, mate? inquired Bill. I don't know answered Tom. Never could find out. You see, it's heaps upon heaps of thousands, for the thousands come first and the billions afterward. But when I thought uncommon hard for a long spell at a time, I always get confused, because millions comes in between, do you see? And that's puzzling. I think I could give you some notion about these things, said Fred Borders, who had been quietly listening all the time, but never putting in a word. For, as I have said, Fred was a modest, bashful man, and seldom spoke much. But we had all come to notice that when Fred spoke, he had always something to say worth hearing. And when he did speak, he spoke out boldly enough. We had come to have feelings of respect for our young shipmate, for he was a kind-hearted lad, and we saw by his conversation that he had been better educated than the most of us. So all our tongues stopped as the eyes of the party turned on him. "'Come, Fred, let's hear it, then,' said Tom. "'It's not much I have to tell,' began Fred, "'but it may help to make your minds clearer on this subject. "'On my first voyage to the whale fishery— "'You know, lads, this is my second voyage— "'I went to the Greenland Seas. "'We had a young doctor aboard with us, quite a youth. "'Indeed, he had not finished his studies at college, "'but he was cleverer for all that than many an older man "'that had gone through his whole course. "'I do believe that the reason of his being so clever was "'that he was forever observing things and studying them— 
and making notes and trying to find out reasons. He was never satisfied with knowing a thing. He must always find out why it was. One day I heard him ask the captain what it was that made the sea so green in some parts of those seas. Our captain was an awfully stupid man. So long as he got plenty of oil, he didn't care two straws for the reason of anything. The young doctor had been bothering him that morning with a good many questions, so when he asked him what made the sea green, he answered sharply, I suppose it makes itself green, young man, and then he turned from him with a fling. The doctor laughed and came forward among the men and began to tell us stories and ask questions. Ah, he was a real hearty fellow. He would tell you all kinds of queer things and would pump you dry of all you knew in no time. Well, but the thing I was going to tell you was this. One of the men said to him he had heard that the greenness of the Greenland Sea was caused by the little things like small bits of jelly on which the whales feed. As soon as he heard this, he got a bucket and hauled some seawater aboard, and for the next ten days he was never done working away with the seawater, pouring it into tumblers and glasses, looking through it by daylight and by lamplight, tasting it and boiling it and examining it with a microscope. What's a microscope? inquired one of the men. Don't you know, said Tom Lokins, why it's a glass that makes little things seem big when you look through it. I've heard say that beasts that are so uncommon small that you can't see them at all are made to come into sight and look quite big by means of this glass. But I can't say myself that it's true. But I can, said Fred, for I have seen it with my own eyes. Well, after a good while, I made bold to ask the young doctor what he had found out. I found, said he, that the greenness of these seas is in truth caused by uncountable numbers of medusae. Ha! That's the word, shouted Tom Lokins. Medusae, that's what the captain calls him. Heave ahead, Fred. Well then, continued Fred, the young doctor went on to tell me that he had been counting the matter to himself very carefully, and he had found that in every square mile of seawater there were living about eleven quadrillions, nine hundred and ninety-nine trillions of these little creatures. Oh, hello! Come now, we all cried, opening our eyes very wide indeed. But I say, how much is that? inquired Tom Lokins. Ah, that's just what I said to the young doctor, and he said to me, I'll tell you what, Fred Borders, no man alive understands how much that is, and what's more, no man ever will. But I'll give you some notion of what it means. And so he told me how long it would take 40,000 men to count that number of 11 quadrillions, 999 trillions, each man of the 40,000 beginning 1, 2, 3, and going on till the sum of the whole added together would make it up. Now, how long do you think it would take him? Guess. Fred Porter smiled as he said this and looked around the circle of men. I know, cried one. It would take the whole 40,000 a week to do it. Oh, nonsense, they could do it easy in two days, said another. That shows how little you know about big numbers, observed Tom Lokins, knocking the ashes out of his pipe. I'm pretty sure it couldn't be done in much less than six months, working hard all day and making allowance for only one hour off for dinner. You're all wrong, shipmate, said Fred Borders. That young doctor told me that if they'd begun work at the day of creation, they would only have just finished the job last year. Oh, come on, you're joking, cried Bill Blunt. 
No, I'm not, said Fred, for I was told afterwards by an old clergyman that the young doctor was quite right, and that anyone who was good at arithmetic could work the thing out for himself in less than half an hour. Just as Fred said this, there came a loud cry from the masthead that made us all spring to our feet like lightning. There she blows! There she breaches! The captain was on deck in a moment. Where away? he cried. On the lee beam, sir, sperm whale about two miles off. There she blows! Every man was at his station in a moment, for after being some months out, we became so used to the work that we acted together like a piece of machinery but our excitement never abated in the least sing out when the ship heads for her aye aye sir keep her away said the captain to the man at the helm bob ludbury hand me the spyglass steady from the masthead steady it is answered the man at the helm while we were all looking eagerly out ahead we heard a thundering snore behind us followed by a heavy splash Turning quickly round, we saw the flukes of an enormous whale sweeping through the air, not more than six hundred yards astern of us. "'Down your helm!' roared the captain. "'Haul up the mainsail and square the yards! Call all hands!' "'All hands ahoy!' roared Bill Blunt in a voice of thunder, and in another moment every man in the ship was on deck. "'Hoist and swing the boats!' cried the captain. "'Lower away!' Down went the boats into the water. The men were into their places almost before you could wink, and we pulled away from the ship just as the whale rose the second time, about half a mile away to leeward. From the appearance of this whale, we felt certain that it was one of the largest we had yet seen, so we pulled after it with right good will. I occupied my usual place in the captain's boat, next the bow oar, just beside Tom Lokins, who was ready with his harpoons in the bow. Young boarders pulled the oar directly in front of me. The captain himself steered, and as our crew was a picked one, we soon left the other two boats behind us. Presently a small whale rose close beside us, and sending a shower of spray over the boat, went down in a pool of foam. Before we had time to speak, another whale rose on the opposite side of the boat, and then another on our starboard bow. We had got into the middle of a shoal of whales, which commenced leaping and spouting all around us, little aware of the dangerous enemy that was so near. In a few minutes more, up comes the big one again that we had first seen. He seemed very active and wild. After blowing on the surface once or twice about a quarter of a mile off, he peaked his flukes and pitched down head foremost. "'Now then, lads, he's down for a long dive,' said the captain. "'Spring your oars like men. We'll get that fish for certain if you'll only pull.' The captain was mistaken. The whale had only gone down deep in order to come up and breach, or spring out of the water, for the next minute he came up not a hundred yards from us, and leaped his whole length into the air. A shout of surprise broke from the men, and no wonder, for this was the largest fish I ever saw or heard of, and he came up so clear of the water that we could see him from head to tail as he turned over in the air, exposing his white belly to view, and came down on his great side with a crash like thunder that might have been heard six miles off. A splendid mass of pure white spray burst from the spot where he fell, and in another moment he was gone. "'I do believe it's New Zealand Tom,' cried Bill Blunt, referring to an old bull whale that had become famous among the men who frequented these seas for its immense size and fierceness, and for the great trouble it had given them smashing some of their boats and carrying away many of their harpoons. "'I don't know whether it's New Zealand Tom or not,' said the captain, "'but it's pretty clear that he's an old sperm bull. 
Give way, lads. We must get that whale whatever it should cost us. We did not need a second bidding. The size of the fish was so great that we felt more excited than we had yet been during the voyage, so we bent our oars till we almost pulled the boat out of the water. The other boats had got separated, chasing the little whales, so we had this one all to ourselves. "'Thar she blows,' said Tom Lokins in a low voice, as the fish came up a short distance astern of us. We had overshot our mark, so turning about we made for the whale, which kept for a considerable time near the top of the water, spouting now and then, and going slowly to windward. We at last got within a few feet of the monster, and the captain suddenly gave the word. "'Stand up!' This was to our harpooner, Tom Lokins, who jumped up on the instant and buried two harpoons deep in the blubber. "'Stern all!' was the next word, and we backed off with all our might. It was just in time, for in his agony the whale tossed his tail right over our heads. The flukes were so big that they could have completely covered the boat, and he brought them down flat on the sea with a clap that made our ears tingle, while a shower of spray drenched us to the skin. For one moment I thought it was all over with us but we were soon out of immediate danger and lay on our oars, watching the writhings of the wounded monster as he lashed the ocean into foam. The water all round us soon became white like milk, and the foam near the whale was red with blood. Suddenly this ceased, and before we could pull up to lance him, he went down, taking the line out at such a rate that the boat spun round, and sparks of fire flew from the loggerhead from the chafing of the rope. "'Hold on!' cried the captain, and next moment we were tearing over the sea at a fearful rate, with a bank of white foam rolling before us high above our bows, and away on each side of us like the track of a steamer, so that we expected at every moment to rush inboard and swamp us. I had never seen anything like this before. From the first I had a kind of feeling that some evil would befall us.' While we were tearing over the water in this way, we saw the other whales coming up every now and then, and blowing quite near to us, and presently we passed close enough to the first mate's boat to see that he was fast to a fish, and unable, therefore, to render us help if we should need it. In a short time the line began to slack, so we hauled it in hand over hand, and Tom Lokins coiled it away in the tub in the stern of the boat, while the captain took his place in the bow to be ready with the lance. The whale soon came up, and we pulled with all our might towards him, Instead of making off again, however, he turned round and made straight at the boat. I now thought that destruction was certain, for when I saw his great blunt forehead coming down on us like a steamboat, I felt that we could not escape. I was mistaken. The captain received him on the point of his lance, and the whale has such a dislike to pain that even a small prick will sometimes turn him. For some time we kept dodging round this fellow, but he was so old and wise that he always turned his head to us and prevented us from getting a chance to lance him. At last he turned a little to one side and the captain plunged the lance deep into his vitals. Ha! That's touched his life, cried Tom, as a stream of blood flew up from his blowholes, a sure sign that he was mortally wounded. But he was not yet conquered. After receiving the cruel stab with the lance, he pitched right down, head foremost, and once more the line began to fly out over the bow. We tried to hold on, but he was going so straight down that the boat was almost swamped, and we had to slack off to prevent our being pulled under water. Before many yards of the line had run out, one of the coils in the tub became entangled. "'Look out, lads!' cried Tom, and at once throwing the turn off the loggerhead, he made an attempt to clear it. The captain, in trying to do the same thing, slipped and fell. Seeing this, I sprang up, and grasping the coil as it flew past, tried to clear it. 
Before I could think, a turn whipped round my left wrist. I felt a wrench as if my arm had been torn out of the socket, and in a moment I was overboard, going down with almost lightning speed into the depths of the sea. Strange to say, I did not lose my presence of mind. I knew exactly what had happened. I felt myself rushing down, 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 with terrific speed. A stream of fire seemed to be whizzing past my eyes. There was a dreadful pressure on my brain and a roaring as if of thunder in my ears. Yet even in that dread moment, thoughts of eternity, of my sins, and of meeting with my God flashed into my mind, for thought is quicker than the lightning flash. Of a sudden the roaring ceased, and I felt myself buffeting the water fiercely in my efforts to reach the surface. I know not how I got free, but I suppose the turn of the line must have slackened off somehow. All this happened within the space of a few brief moments, but, oh, they seemed fearfully long to me. I do not think I could have held my breath a second longer. When I came to the surface and tried to look about me, I saw the boat not more than fifty yards off, and being a good swimmer I struck out for it, although I felt terribly exhausted. In a few minutes my comrades saw me, and with a cheer put out the oars and began to row towards me. I saw that the line was slack and that they were hauling it in, a sign that the whale had ceased running and would soon come to the surface again. Before they had pulled half a dozen strokes, I saw the water open close beside the boat, and the monstrous head of the whale shot up like a great rock rising out of the deep. He was not more than three feet from the boat, and he came up with such force that more than half his gigantic length came out of the water, right over the boat. I heard the captain's loud cry, Stern all! But it was too late. The whole weight of the monster's body fell upon the boat. There was a crash and a terrible cry as the whale and the boat went down together. For a few moments he continued to lash the sea in his fury, and the fragments of the boat floated all around him. I thought that every man, of course, had been killed. But one after another their heads appeared in the midst of blood and foam, and they struck out for oars and pieces of the wreck. Providentially the whale, in his tossings, had shot a little away from the spot, else every man must certainly have been killed. A feeling of horror filled my heart as I beheld this, and thought upon my position. Fortunately I had succeeded in reaching a broken plank, for my strength was now so much exhausted that I could not have kept my head above water any longer without its assistance. Just then I heard a cheer, and the next time I rose on the swell I looked quickly around and saw the mate's boat making for the scene of action as fast as a stout and willing crew could pull. In a few minutes more I was clutched by the arm and hauled into it. My comrades were next rescued, and we thanked God when we found that none were killed, although one of them had got a leg broken, and another an arm twisted out of joint. They all, however, seemed to think that my escape was much more wonderful than theirs, but I cannot say that I agreed with them in this. We now turned our attention to the whale, which had dived again. As it was now loose, we did not know, of course, where it would come up, so we lay still a while. Very soon up he came, not far from us, and as fierce as ever. "'Now, lads, we must get that whale,' cried the mate. "'Give way with a will!' The order was obeyed. The boat almost leaped over the swell, and before long another harpoon was in the whale's back. "'Fast again! Hurrah!' shouted the mate. "'Now for the lance!' He gave the monster two deep stabs while he spoke, and spouting the red stream of life it rolled on the sea in agony, obliging us to keep well out of its way. I could not look upon the dying struggles of this enormous fish without feelings of regret and self-reproach for helping to destroy it. I felt almost as if I were a murderer, 
and that the Creator would call me to account for taking part in the destruction of one of his grandest living creatures. But the thought passed quickly from my mind, as the whale became more violent and went into its flurry. It began to lash the sea with such astonishing violence that all the previous struggles seemed as nothing. The water all round became white like milk with great streaks of red blood running through it, and the sound of the quick blows of its tail and fins resembled that of dull, hollow thunder. We gazed at this scene in deep silence and with beating hearts. All at once the struggle ceased. The great carcass rolled over belly up and lay extended on the sea in death. To me it seemed as if a dead calm had suddenly fallen around us after a long and furious storm, so great was the change when that whale at length parted with its huge life. The silence was suddenly broken by three hearty cheers, and then, fastening a rope to our prize, we commenced towing it to the ship, which operation occupied us the greater part of the night, for we had no fewer than eight miles to pull. End of chapter 7